This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. Mark, we're about to go racing here on the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speed. Green flag is in the air, and the Gallagher Grand Prix heads to turn number one in Michael Young. Race fans on their feet. They will greet the field of 25 here to turn number one. The big mover, Joseph Newgarden. He'll dive all the way down to the entrance of turn number one. But Felix Rosenquist will control that lead. Alexander Rossi, P2. Oh, we got one turned around. It's Pato Award. He won't collect anybody, but will go to the end of the field. Quickly through that switch back at turn number five. Colton Hurd has got a run. Yeah, not sure Felix Rosenquist can worry about his future right now. He's got to worry about the car in second, and it's Colton Herta. He won here in May on the road course. He's going to take a look to the inside. He'll dart around Felix Rosenquist. New race leader, it's Colton Herta through the S's. We have a car slowing down here in front of me, and it looks like it is Colton Herta. Colton Herta is to the outside of the track, going very slow. He is well off the pace as everybody goes around him. He may not even make it to turn number 12. You can Alexander up, Rossi inherits the lead as Colton Herta comes to nearly a stop heading into turn number 12. Mark, the entire field is passed. The fans start to cover their feet off of turn number 13 comes Alexander Rossi. Mark James, help bring home Alexander Rossi onto the main straightaway. Select company being a champion at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the Indy 500 and a champion on the road course to the resume is Alexander Rossi. Sees the twin checkered flag and he wins the Gallagher Grand Prix. There's been some very challenging times, um, some publicly, some not, and, and everyone just continued to, to fight the fight and, and give me the best possible equipment every weekend. So that's a hats off to, to Michael and the whole organization. And I'm just so thankful to close the loop as, as we did. We have five races to go, but um, this one's for the boys, and, and I'm so happy for them. It's career win number eight for Alexander Rossi. So tonight on the program, we're already full because we have an IndyCar weekend and NASCAR at the Brickyard to recap. Highlights of the Gallagher Grand Prix, courtesy of IndyCar Radio there. We've got the big machine Music City Grand Prix in Nashville coming up this weekend to preview and talk about what's going on. It's August 1st or the 2nd, actually, so that date has passed. So some drivers are now full free agents. No news on that yet other than... There are more legal uh, announcements in Chip Ganassi racing v. Alex Pillow. And F1 seems to have taken a few ideas from IndyCar in the last few years. So why not join in and have drivers refute team announcements? It appears the McLaren has added yet another driver. Hello, welcome to the big program tonight. Trackside 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan, Josh Mullenix is in our studios in Indianapolis. Where do you want to start? <laughs> you know, we, we didn't know Formula One might be the most interesting thing that happened this <laughs> week or the last uh, few days, but that's been fun. But, no, a good weekend at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, another win for A.J. Allmendinger. So uh, I thought it was interesting the other day on the on the Peacock broadcast, Jimmy Johnson was asked, which NASCAR driver would you like to see in an IndyCar on this road course? And he said, how about A.J. Allmendinger? <laughs> and and uh, I think that he doesn't count right in. I know it doesn't count, but he, that's what he said. Yeah. And I thought that was that was good fun. Allmendinger, spectacular. Rossi with a big win. I enjoyed the, uh, if you haven't seen it on the various outlets, a photograph of the group shot with Brian Barnhart taking a selfie of the group. It was just good. I felt good for uh, the Rossi uh, crew and, and the organization that, that supports him because it's been a, lot, a tough three years. 
and they finally, you know, they've obviously got some more uh, more hurdles to, to overcome over the next couple of weeks before they part ways at the end of the season. So just good for that group to to get a win. Beautiful weekend at right at uh, IMS and a truck race at Raceway Park. So had a little bit of everything over the last uh, few days. So before we get into all the shenanigans going on, let's just talk about the racing for just a moment and about Alexander Rossi. And I'm with you. You feel good for everybody involved and, and for Rossi as well. I, I really like Rossi. He's got this dry sense of humor and I find him as one of my go-to guys when, you know, that will always tell me what's going on. Uh, and as I think either he or Michael said, when the parting of ways was announced is yeah. Okay. It didn't work out. It was time for a change, but we want an Indy 500 together. So they're always going to have that relationship. And if, if there are any wounds, I honestly don't know what the feeling is like internally, but if there are some, I suspect they will be healed over time. And it's good, good to go out with a win, not just a negative. I haven't won in three and a half years because they've been quick enough to get it done in time at times, and I guess they were due a break. Colton Herta probably should have won this race, but it doesn't always work out the way, and Rossi was close enough to make it make it very, very legit. He was close enough to make it legit, and as Rossi said, I've had my share of those uh, ill-timed breaks uh, going against me as well, and, and I looked it up, I and I don't have the stat now in front of me, but it's like eight or nine times he's finished in the top two or three, second or third, since that uh, Road America victory that he just dominated in in uh, 2019. So he's had his chances, so to speak, and he's been in position, and one thing after another goes wrong. I think about St. Pete a couple of years ago. He's leading the race late in the session, and and uh, slaps the wall in turn three at, on the street circuit, and that's the end of that. And uh, he had the field covered that day. You know, there's a lot of uh, things that go into one of the dynamic into the dynamics of, of one of these race teams, and and just kind of to see everybody uplifted this time was great. Uh, I saw the if 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 you saw the uh, quick exchange that that Michael and Rossi had in Victory Lane, it was. It was pretty quick. It didn't look like long lost friends. It wasn't the kind of bear hug that you might expect. But uh, I suspect that, you know, the next few months will be still a little bit uh, tense. Uh, but I think after after they move and go their separate ways, uh, I think there's going to be that great bond and and uh, and the friendship that will that will last a long time. But it still may be a little rocky over the next few weeks. So let's kind of go back and, and look at the contenders in this race and those that had a chance to win. And let's start with Felix Rosenquist. That was, it was just an odd little stretch because he held the lead at the start. He held the lead on the first restart and it was what lap two of the restart on lap seven or eight, maybe lap three. And he lost three spots from between turns seven and 12 and then even after that, I, I kind of went around to ask the team what what happened and didn't really get any answers. And I I, I found um, someone in the team to say, yeah, we were just a little bit slow in the last stop. So that might have been part of it. And then I see it sounds like after the fact, I think Felix maybe mentioned this in a conference call that he did today, that they had some uh, brake dragging issues 
that he thought was impacting him for a little while in the middle of the race. So last week at Iowa, it was, I guess, a week break that was impacting him getting into his box and getting on the pit lane and, and some sort of brake dragging that maybe that was the issue, that he's just a little bit tick off there because once we noticed him running there in 10th or 11th, he picked up, up a couple of more spots and he was very stable the rest of the way. But that probably feels like that's one that got away too. Well, it's, you know, we've talked about, about Felix's plight quite a few times over the last several shows. And you really just kind of hope this one might be the one that, that uh, was a breakthrough for him, get that second career victory in the series. But yeah, he dropped pretty quickly. Um, it was, uh, you know, I, you just at first thought something really broke on the car because he, he faded, you know, like you said, I think three or four positions in, in a matter of corners. So, um, you know, as he said, we just got to keep, going forward and and uh gonna have more confidence as we we continue on and and hopefully get that win i'd love to see him kind of uh if it's going to end for his you know his uh indycar bid at this moment i'd like to see him go out with a win but gonna be tough and uh yeah you really felt for him and then colton herta takes over he's the one that passed him on track early on i think it was lap eight after seven complete, and it looks like he's pretty home free. Uh, and, and he had taken a little bit of contact early in the race, like a lot of people did in the first lap. And then it, we wondered, well, is it because he went over the curbs? Uh, because then all of a sudden he's slowing to a stop. So as of, I guess, this morning, uh, maybe David Mulsher Lopez, some, somebody had a story either – Malsher or Marshall had a story saying the team still doesn't know exactly what it was. Uh, I had a couple of good sources on the team that told me it was a part they have no control of at that point. So that, that's maybe why you're not going to get an official comment at this point, because it's potentially some of these parts. And it was explained to me what it was. And that kind of is above my head. And I just decided to stay with the simple part. It's a part that we don't control that is essentially handed out and we don't get to, to see what the mileage is on it. So we can't control that. And I think that led to the, a lot of the frustration and maybe why Colton declined to talk when Dylan asked him uh, as he was walking back that, you know, he had already probably, if not been told you shouldn't say that, realized I probably don't want to criticize the tire partner. Next, I won't say anything else. So I'm just going to be quiet for a little while. That was after qualifying on Saturday when we had uh, Friday, we had back to back interviews saying the tire was a little bit inconsistent, um, which I'm sure happens and doesn't luckily happen all that often. But we don't really know what happened to Colton Herta other than he was fast enough to win. And then from there, Alexander Rossi takes control, and he's got the rookie to fend off the rest of the way. So it's not a win, but it it's pretty close for Christian Lungard. And this can kind of make their season of what's been a really frustrating season. Well, yeah, I don't know if it makes it just yet, but it certainly was uh... – a, you know, a tick in the right direction. The race team, you know, finished with a seventh place finish from Graham Rahal. And of course the podium finished second for Christian, Christian uh, Lundgaard, I almost called him Christian, Christian Rasmussen uh, to have two of those first names in the, in the game. But uh, you know, Harvey was down a ways, but they all qualified a little bit better in this particular event. 
Uh, Lungard has been, he's been coming, you know, he's, he continues to lead the rookie standings. It got close after Malukas, uh, performed pretty well at, at Iowa, but, uh, now it's backed up 26, 28 points and feels like rookie of the year is pretty much in Lungard's control if, if he can see it through. So, uh, good for him. He's, he's, uh, He's quietly kept his head down this year. You haven't really heard a lot from him. He has just meaning, you know, he's not he's not been uh, chatty overly so in the in you know discussing issues, you know, trouble with the team or anything. He's kind of just done his job and and what the team gave him was was what he's driven. So he's uh, he's done a nice job. I've been pretty impressed with with Christian and and. Um, and I think you know. Hopefully, there's there's more from this race team, uh, you know, in the weeks to come. They've they have you know finally finished up their building that we talked earlier in the season about in in Zionsville, and you know there's a lot of momentum for this organization. Went to three cars this year, and and certainly have good pieces uh, throughout the organization, both in the, in the driver's seat and and on the engineering stand. So hopefully, this is a a, a step in the right direction for them. I would say that Christian Lungarn has done really well when you consider where that team is at. Um, yeah. I don't know what to say. It's been really, really rough. And Ray Hall's skill at overcoming poor starts has kind of salvaged something because, you know, you look at his results, whereas Graham in, in points, he's not, you know, he's mid pack or so. So it's not like he's all the way at the back. Um, but that's only because he races exceptionally well. Graham Rahal may not qualify well. Some of that is, or a lot of it, is on the setup and the team and everything else. But he always races well. And for Lungard to be coming pretty close to matching him says something. And the fact that, boy, everybody thinks Jack Harvey's pretty good. I think he is too. And just a miserable season. I, I, wanted, I have no idea what happened to Jack Harvey. In this race, uh, he wasn't in my section. He finished, I think, 20th. And then I saw so I went to look at the release because sometimes you find something there. They don't even have a quote from him. I'm just kind of glancing while we're talking. There's not a quote from him in the release. So sometimes that's a sign. Got nothing nice to say. I won't say anything at all. I can't recall a team release not having a quote from the driver somewhere in that. So that's kind of where things are at at this point with them. And the frustration continues. Luckily, hopefully this contract matters. Uh, but luckily, I believe he has a multi-year contract. And what's going to, I think, make it fine for him is that the team performance has not been solid all season long. So everyone's going to understand that. And hopefully his year or two is more in line with what Felix Rosenquist is in year two, getting used to a different system and, and everybody raising the entire program. And I'm sure that they're going to hire uh, or at least do everything they can to add a little more engineering depth. Uh, I'm not sure if Eddie Jones has been around all season long. He had sort of semi-retired, but I have specifically taken a look the last couple of weeks and Eddie has been there. And coincidence or not, things have gone a little bit better for them. So I haven't asked Eddie, you know, what his plan is, if he plans on being here all year next year or if they need to add to it. And that's not to disparage the lead engineers on those cars. We're seeing you need more than one guy. There's a lot of work to do. One guy, one lady, whatever the case may be. You need engineering depth. 
And that's why you're seeing more of a path of when they can do it, Ganassi wants Chris Simmons, not on a car. Now, he's been back on Scott Dixon's car here recently. Gavin Ward has been hired for Aaron McLaren SP. He's a championship-winning engineer. We don't want you on a car. We want you overseeing development, overseeing the entire program, helping. And, you know, those are the kind of things that the bigger teams have and not everyone has. Uh, and you'd even like to have a couple of those people in that regard. Well, I I hadn't really looked at the at the standings, you know, beyond the first five or six, you know, because ultimately, you know, if you're not, you're not in that top five, you're probably, you know, just focused on getting better. But here, here's really how difficult it has been for Jack Harvey. His point total is, is less than, than uh, Callum Eilat and Jimmy Johnson. Uh, I did not realize he had, had had that difficult of a season. And so it's, it's, um, yeah, he, yeah, everybody yeah, regards he, he missed, him. He, he did miss a race. He did so miss did Cal a race. Mylott. So did Cal, so did Cal <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's challenging. Yeah, people highly regard him. Um, but uh, this is not the way it, it should go. Yeah, I think everybody understands this is not just a reflection of Jack. It's it, Also, keep in mind, they added a car. This is the same kind of thing we talked about with Marcus Erickson and we see them now in year three and where they are at competing for a championship. You're adding people. You are trying to expand your organization at a time when it is very difficult to find people because the good thing is racing is going well. Every series is adding cars and that's fantastic. But the challenge of that is that means there's more competition for crew people, and you're not just competing with other in, other IndyCar teams for mechanics and engineers. You're competing with IMSA and all levels of sports car racing, to some extent, maybe even the road to Indy, but more so sports car racing, NASCAR, Formula One, to some extent. There have been IndyCar people that have left for Formula One, so uh, that that is kind of the challenge, and it is a good time if you're a young person that is mechanically inclined to, to try to work your way up through the road to Indy. You might be in IndyCar within a matter of a few months if, if you show some aptitude. So let's get back uh, talking about those that had a chance and just big picture things. Penske finishes three, four, five, but it was anything but routine for how they all got there, you know, including the entire weekend. Maybe we start with Joseph Newgarden when, you know, we talked Thursday, I guess Thursday night we knew. Uh, but even then, he was only cleared for the first practice. That seemed more like more of a precaution. If he's cleared for the first practice, he should be okay unless something out of the ordinary happens. But as late as Wednesday, we didn't know what was going to happen there. And he keeps himself in the championship mix by qualifying fifth and finishing fifth. He did, and and he got to third. Of course, then he got he got asked to, to remove himself from those two positions for uh, – what was it? Exceeding track limits? Is that is that what they called it? And we never saw it. And I don't know if they really told us where it was or when it was, because there was a little bit of confusion. Um, because I think we by the time we were told. It was during the caution right before they went back to green and he was already in fifth at that time. So by the time the booth gets the message, which was just shortly after I did, uh, they said, he's got to give up two spots and he already had. 
at that point. So we didn't really, and that, that probably makes it confusing for tape to, to go back and try to find where it is. So, uh, you know, I have no idea what the communication was like in the truck, but the, the, my guess is it was turn six. That's the one that I was told where, yeah. where track limits would be. But we also were told it's not going to help you. You're not going to pick up any time. So maybe it was somewhere else. So we'll see if we get some clarification on that because ultimately that did make a difference. He falls back to fifth and he finishes fifth. Yeah, it and did. Uh, he took off after the race fairly quickly. So he might have been annoyed about that. I thought maybe it was at the start on in turn one, uh, but then when I saw the replay, it wasn't. Yeah, he, it wasn't egregious. Yeah, I didn't Mm -hmm. see it either. So I couldn't find a spot. And then, you know, my suspicion went to turn six, as you described. Uh, But but nothing really there. But a good, you know, that's one of those weekends that you may not remember at the end of the season if he wins the championship or, you know, is is going to the last race with a chance to win the championship. It will not stand out as a weekend, a fifth place finish on the road course at Indianapolis. But that one could have been disastrous to his point total, um, yep. you know, in terms of, you know, if he misses the race, if he just isn't up to it, if he doesn't, um, you know, any name any of your reasons why it doesn't go well. And then to come home fifth, that's that's solid. You know, that's that's 30 points instead of maybe coming home with eight or 10 or 12. And so a good weekend for him, uh, you know, his teammates, uh, they they took turns leading McLaughlin led 10 laps and power led seven. And so they were, you know, in the hunt, but, but never really felt like they were on top of the race. Power did, you know, a, a masterful job, uh, came in there and, and got, got, uh, bounced around on the, on the opening lap, really survived that, that situation, uh, came in early for a pit stop, then had to make a fuel number that was almost ridiculous. I, I when it first happened, I thought he he's, he can't make this. He not only made it, he stayed in the hunt for a podium, and that that will probably be the race that it, that we go back to if he wins a championship and say that's the race where the championship was um, maybe not won, but that's that's a race where uh, he really displayed a championship day. I think that was uh, excellent on his part. Power is really good at saving fuel. We give Scott Dixon credit for doing that, and he's been doing it for a long time, but Power has also always been really good. That caution for, when was it? It was the second caution. It was uh, Pagano. Oh, time and Pagano ran out of fuel. Uh, that, that helped him out in that case because he had already pitted because he came in, I think, on like 31 or 32, and you really needed to get to 35 for your second stop so that put him in position where he could save a little bit of fuel everybody else also came in there so you know they were in a position where they were going to need to save just a little bit and and they went to 60 and he made it to 60 which was kind of the get home number in that case so the caution helped but he might have made it anyway because i know this he was not coasting to the finish right before he got to the white flag he was told use all the push to pass you want which means we have no fuel concerns. So, you know, oftentimes people say, hey, why did he have 100 seconds of push to pass left? Well, that's because they were saving fuel. Push to pass is simply just turning up the fuel mixture. Uh, in the, the most basic, it's not totally that, but it, it burns a lot more fuel. Well, that's true. And, and he, he did get 
you know, to the point where he could use the push to pass. But he was pretty routinely losing, you know, three tenths here, four tenths there uh, to yep. the leader. And he was in he was in pretty massive uh, consumption uh, or fuel conservation uh, up until that last couple of laps. But, uh, yeah, he we give Dixon, you know, almost exclusive credit for being good on fuel. But power been underrated in that regard. Given his speed, he's been underrated in terms of uh, fuel saving for a long time. And how about this nugget when we think about the championship Ryan Marine of IndyCar Radio had this one. Through the first 13 races this season, Power's average finishing position, 6.1, is better than his average starting position, 9.1. That has happened only once before in 16 full-time IndyCar Champ Car seasons. That one year, 2014, the year that he won the championship. This is the guy that maybe in three weeks is going to legitimately, not hyperbably, be the best qualifier of all time. He is one pull away from no one being better, one away from Mario Andretti. So starting up front is the norm for him. But this year it has been the ability to move forward in the races and just collect podiums. What is it? It's got something like, I think I have it in my notes, 10 or 11 top fours. <laughs> just, just an amazing number, 10 times in the top four. And the one that hurts, 15th in the Indy 500, uh, if he'd have had a top five in the Indy 500, it, just like the same thing with Dixon, well, hopefully both of them would have because then it'd be a two-car race or one of them would have it somewhat walking away. 19th at Road America, 15th at Toronto, all the rest inside the top four. And the final guy we'll mention is Scott McLaughlin, who is uh, a really a, still, I think, a long shot for the championship, but... By starting 15th and finishing fourth, I think his confidence continues to grow. And what he is doing is he is in position. If he wins another race, you know, I don't think he's going to win the championship from 81 points back with uh, four to go. But, you know, another podium soon, all of a sudden he is into that last race where he's kind of part of the conversation. You know, if you're within, if you stay within – 60 points, you know, you get to the last race within 40 points, you're mathematically alive. I think he is in position where he might be able to stay mathematically alive. So how much does that help moving forward? Because I think next year we're going to talk about him as a le much more of a legit championship contender. Yeah, I agree. And I, I go back as you were describing that, thinking about the start of the season, and I was saying, after he said, and I don't remember exactly where he said he thought he could finish five or six, and I thought uh, he just can't get that high. I just I named too many other drivers that I thought would be ahead of him in the championship at the end of the season, and and so I take you know give him a lot of kudos for that. Uh, getting back to power, I think it's like seven of thirteen podiums. I mean that's that's a championship level season, and the three poles. About 11 years with at least three poles. That is, I mean, I know, I know we're talking about being a, a great qualifier, but that is in different eras, different cars, same team, but different teammates, uh, different circumstances. One, you know, some of that's uh, more of a, a, an oval series. Uh, now, you know, certainly dominated more by street and road courses, 
just a phenomenal, phenomenal career that Will's put together. It's, it's, um, he really deserves another championship given how well he ran. Of course, he should have, he should have won championships in 2010, uh, 11 and 12, uh, gave those away at, at the end of the season. But, but, uh, it's it's really been a remarkable career, and this has been a remarkable season, all things considered. It, his seven uh, his seven podiums, I don't think he's ever had more than maybe one or two years where he had more than that in a whole season, and we're not even to the end of this yet. Plenty more to come. We have many candidates for the Speed Drum Circle City Raceway News of the Day, so we'll get into that a little later on. And maybe we'll get into the ultimate silliness coming up next, plus more on what happened in Indianapolis, looking ahead to Nashville. We'll talk about the event itself and the the debate over whether NASCAR should be on the oval or the road course. Your tweets are welcome at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan. It's trackside 93.5107.5 The Fan. 50th race to charm back to victory circle Sunday in the Gallagher Grand Prix at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway third IndyCar race of the season at IMS. Thanks for staying with us at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan for Twitter tonight. Uh, Let's see the Denger wins again in the Xfinity race was in position to maybe be able to win. Kind of tough with heat stroke. Uh, we talked about what happens when the cool system doesn't work. I don't know that he literally had heat stroke, but he did not look well. So not only was he out of water, but the, the cooling system didn't work. And then it's just basically you're sitting in a tub of hot water all day and he was still running third and finished fourth or something like that. And Tyler Reddick wins. So here we have continue the theme. With drivers that have already said, I don't like where I'm at. I'm ready to go. He is signed <laughs> to join Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan's team for 2024. Remember, that came out the same day as, as the Alex Pillow, Ganassi McLaren soap opera started. And, you know, everybody thought, well, this is a big deal. And then it was, hold my beer. We've got something for you here. We'll be claimed by two teams. Um, but yeah, he's got one more lame duck season for now for RCR, unless RCR can sign Kyle Busch or something like that and say, just move along. We'll let you out of the contract. Uh, let's, let's talk events. What do we make of the event this weekend in Indianapolis on the road course with the two series again? Well, I, you know, this has just been a, it's been an interesting situation since, you know, the, the early two thousands, as we've watched NASCAR and, and the speedway, you know, slowly erode, uh, but but it's mostly, I mean, you see this at, at other NASCAR tracks, so it's not a new phenomenon here. But you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, f- I like the event. I like watching the road course race. Um, it's interesting to me. I thought the the crowd was reasonable, um, but man, it just it, it's such a far cry from where we were at. You know, you hate to say twenty years ago. I hate to say it. Sound like. Uh, uh, yeah. The old guy in in the discussion, but man, this has just been such a drop off from from where where we were at. Even those people forget. I mean, even even those early two thousands, even up until the tire issue uh, that Goodyear had in in uh, what oh seven. Uh, yeah, that, I think so. You know, it's it's still those are still very large crowds. Uh, people think about it. You know, they've been around for a while. Think about just the 94, 95, 96 years were big crowds. But, you know, we've had big crowds for a long time. I think the drop-off really kind of started, 
you know, after Dale Sr. passed, uh, the next year after that, and it and it's kind of slowly, slowly eroded. You think from it started there. that soon? You think it started that soon? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. Uh, and I think a lot of a lot of tracks had that issue. Um, they people just kind of lost, you know, lost their hero. Um, and then, but I don't know. It, it, it's like I said, it's an interesting race. I think the road racing was good. I thought, you know, the the problems in in turn six were corrected. You know, that situation, yeah, handled handled right. Um, we had good weather. It was it was a fun day to be out there. Honestly, I'd rank Saturday with the three different types of cars on the racetrack uh, during the day as as one of the most enjoyable days of the year. Honestly, I mean, it's not carb day or race day at Indy or even pole day, but but it, it's really interesting to have, you know, to have. I, I was I was walking down pit lane, and and watching you know the IndyCar guys work, and I look over to my other shoulder. And there are crew guys from the stock car world. They are just pressed against the fence like fans do during the month of mm-hmm. May because that's where they're, they're pitted. It was in the garages. They're in the F1 garages as we know them. And they're in there just nosing, trying to see what's going on, trying to catch a, you know, and they could walk out there. But a lot of them, you know, had to stay close to their own cars. But they were interested, in, and you saw a lot of the, uh, a lot of the drivers interacting and, and the, of course, the photograph with uh, with all the different Brickyard and Indy 500 winners uh, was just yeah, special was awesome. beyond belief. But uh, it, I just like Saturday. People were interested in, in both types of cars, and, um, and it was really good, really good. Crossover weekend serves that purpose, and I'm with you. Now, obviously, we're IndyCar people, so we're going to find Saturday – more interesting too. I know some of this, uh, some of the people that have suites had much higher demand on Saturday than Sunday. Sunday was available until we got to this weekend, but Saturday has been sold out for a while, not in every suite, but, but at least the ones that, that I deal with. Uh, and that's the perfect day because you get to see a little bit of everything and I'm sure we can always be better, but I like the way we, you know, maybe IndyCar fans get annoyed that we're interviewing a NASCAR driver during the IndyCar race, but it's kind of to, to just show that the NASCAR drivers are race fans too. Like you talked about with the crew guys, the, the drivers are the same. They want to see this. And I think they showed some of the IndyCar guys like Scott Dixon there on Sunday, watching the cup race. And um, in a perfect world, I'd love for IndyCar to be after the Xfinity race from the IndyCar perspective. I would like to see more benefit for IndyCar with having Xfinity as a lead-in. And and frankly, their audience is still larger um, in some ways because they have better time slots. But just in, in general, if you look, if they have similar time slots, Xfinity is a little bit higher than IndyCar in terms of ratings. So that would be a way to get the NASCAR fan to maybe sample IndyCar. Right now, all we're doing is trying to get the IndyCar fan to sample NASCAR. But NBC's still trying to do what they can. They still had frequent mentions during the Xfinity and the Cup broadcast about Alexander Rossi won early today. It's part of a crossover weekend. Don't forget, you can watch Nashville coming up next weekend as well. So they're doing what they can. I think that was nice that Hinchcliffe was in the booth for the Xfinity broadcast to kind of expose a good personality to a new set of fans, bringing Dale Jr. onto the IndyCar broadcast as a trade. And then 
I'll have to ask about this, but I don't think Hinch was scheduled for Sunday in the pre-race until they finished Saturday. So they must have liked him because I hadn't heard that. But all of a sudden, I go back to watch the race on Sunday. I went to it on Sunday, and, and there's Hinch with him. So that's good. That serves that purpose. You know, as to the event, when you stop selling out and the ticket is no longer in demand, then it becomes even harder and harder because that was part of the incentive. You needed to get your tickets early. You needed to know someone. You needed to scalp them. And then it's, well, you need to still get your tickets if you want to sit in the right spot. And all of a sudden, when you get down below 100,000 in a quarter of a million seat stadium, you're going to be able to find a good seat as a walk up. So then it's, well, if it's too hot or it might rain or if Junior's doubleheader went extra innings the day before and we're tired, we're not going to go. And then I think that's where you get into that point where you're at 60,000 people a race. So then you got to try something up. And if the crowd is 60,000, I didn't count them. I don't know how you tell. It's very difficult. There's infield. Uh, it's a different seating arrangement, but whatever. 40 to 70,000, whatever. That's still a pretty decent crowd. It's still, you know, I, I'm going to guess better than a third of the races, something like that. It just doesn't look great at a massive place like this. So I'm not sure what you do. What I did notice from being a spectator on Sunday, it sure took a long time for the race to get going. And with no support races, is that something where you think about a big concert to draw things in? You know, you go to the Indy 500, and that's the only race that day, but you feel like I got to be in my seat three hours before the race because I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss the the historic cars going around and the former winners in a pace car and the things that are doing on the video board. And I will say this, I thought the video board crew was fantastic about just making it a TV show and interviewing drivers and trying to keep the energy up. But, but it's a challenge when there's nothing going on until 2.30 or something like that. And it's easy for me to say at a concert because I'm not paying for it. So then you have to decide, all right, are you going to draw more than – 20, 25,000 people for a concert. In reality, adding 20,000 in a place that can fill, hold 300, you know, to get you to 80, eh, that, that doesn't do you a whole lot. But it's something to think about. Maybe you do a snake pit where you try to get all the kids, and who cares if they pay attention to the race? Well, let's just show something in the infield, and that's a way to explain, hey, this is why all the seats are empty in this section, because all the kids are down there. That's 50,000 people down there. Nobody knows if it's 50 or 15. It's just a mash of people. So maybe you're taking the high V Iowa experience and trying to do it there. Uh, I think the road course will be back next year. Uh, I believe Roger Penske and Doug Bowles kind of alluded to that. And whether they would have said it or not, I think it would be because they're probably too deep in their thinking. But here's my guess, because already Roger and Doug are saying we're open to reconsidering the Oval. I've, I'm guessing that the road course uh, interest is wearing off with the NASCAR fan. And when they had two, that wasn't enough. Three wasn't quite enough. Eh, seven might be. And they've kind of had it. And they're tired of, while they like chaos, they're tired of their favorite driver, driver being randomly punted and, and seeing a good result go away. And plus, they hear their driver say how much they want to be on the oval. So I will predict that in 2024, that will be the next thing that we can look to to reinvigorate 
things and try it on the oval again. And maybe they do go back to a road course on Saturday and Sunday. I know that's very difficult to mix things up, but my guess is the road course gets one more go. And I mean, all things considered, I think that's probably good enough, but it depends on what NASCAR wants and you want to continue to collect their TV money. So I think you're going to somewhat acquiesce to what they want because you want that guaranteed TV TV revenue. I'd say I'd say I follow your your line of thinking with regard to road course in 23 and oval in 24. And then we'll just have to see how it rotates or or stays the way it is. But uh, yeah, I think you uh, you certainly want NASCAR here. And I thought I like the crossover pairing. So we'll Mm -hmm. see if it fits in IndyCar's plans as well. If IndyCar gets to a point where they have two or three other promoters open to paying a million plus in sanctioning fee, then I think this is one that you could knock off. But until you're to that point, I do think it still serves a value. It has to be a little bit cheaper for everyone. The series is here. Most of the teams are here. I do think there's a value in getting in front of some NASCAR fans and doing some different things there. Who knows? Maybe you do have the circumstance some year where you can get, uh, I think it'd be easier to get an IndyCar driver in one of their cars I don't think a cup driver, a NASCAR driver doing a one-off, that's going to go horribly poor. <laughs> we see one of the greatest drivers they've ever had, Jimmy Johnson. Yes, he's in his mid-40s, but he's been doing it for two years, and he's running at the back. So that's probably not incentive for Kyle Larson to say, yeah, I can jump in there and run mid-pack. No, you can't. No, you can't. Not unless you put a lot to it. I do think you can put an IndyCar driver in an Xfinity car, like we saw Jack Hawksworth do and almost win his very first race at Middle Iowa a few years ago, I think you can do that, and they can, they can do well. Winning would be tough, but you put them in a good car, they can run up near the front. All right, we'll get into some news of the day and some other things, and we still have, oh, much silliness to get to coming up on Trackside. One thing I forgot to mention on Friday night show, we're happy to be back weeknights, uh, weekly. I do kind of miss the weeknight shows. Uh, Thursday's event, I thought went really well. And I had planned to plausibly live tape some of the show, but there weren't people there when I was going to tape it. So we just, we'll do it live. Like Bill O'Reilly says, and that worked out pretty well for the first segment with, uh, running into Marcus Erickson and Sheldon Creed and Lee Diffie and some other people. Thank you to everyone who participated, uh, either in one way or another for the Brickyard Prelude Party presented by Wise Financial for the Survivors of Violence Foundation with Dr. Chernoff and his wife, Jill, this past Thursday night at Prime 47. Um, I don't get out a whole lot anymore, but Clayton Anderson is awesome. So I encourage you to, to find a, a chance to go see him play. You don't need to be a hardcore country fan. He's, he's a country singer. But he's not a country singer, if that makes sense. You'll have fun with Clayton Anderson. He plays all kinds of music. Thanks to Marcus Erickson, we heard from, Ramon Grosjean, his engineer, Olivier Balsan. We had another engineer, Renus VK's engineer, Matt Barnes, that I looked up, and he was in the house. Connor Daly, Callum Eilat, uh, Christian Rasmussen, the race winner, Indy Lights driver from Andretti Autosport. Jackson Lee, I was able to convince him to come and join There were a couple of other Indy 500 winners that uh, were planning on coming, but it appears they were told to come Friday nights. So that's why they didn't make it. So they'll be in the next time around. And we got our wires crossed on that one. Uh, Sheldon Creed, who was in position to win the Xfinity race late in the race until 
He got Ross Chastained. I like Ross, but yeah, he runs into a lot of people. Uh, and and Maria Kofer, also her teammate, and they'll be running in the BC 39. Uh, thanks. We'll get to that in a moment, Kurt. Uh, my buddies Lee Diffie and Calvin Fish, James Hinchcliffe did a great job co-hosting. Eddie White from Pacer Sports and Entertainment was awesome as the auctioneer. We raised all kinds of money. And thanks to Brent Cox and his staff at Cox Beckman Goss CPA. So we had a lot of fun. Uh, Thursday night at Prime 47. And the BC 39, well, they've got like the draft going on tonight. It's probably just finished up downtown. And there will be another chance to go the Indianapolis Motor Speedway tomorrow and Thursday nights. Track action tomorrow and Thursday. And and I know there's still uh, good tickets available for the first night tomorrow night. I would encourage you to get out and see it. It is it is so difficult to imagine that you're watching a really a world-class dirt track race uh, with 89 competitors, including Kyle Larson and, and Chase Briscoe and, and the list goes on down, you know, Donnie Schatz, a 10 time world of outlaws champion. I mean, that this is a, this is a who's who of, of dirt track racing. And you're looking at turn three of the oval while it, while it's all happening and you can see the golf course too. It's, it's quite amazing seat to be in. IndyCar driver Zach Feach is going to be there. I think that's his first time driving a midget. Our buddy Dylan Welch, who made the uh, the feature the first time around, he'll be driving. So a lot of names, you know, Ryan Newman uh, is going to be in it. Um, ben Varner. I know a lot of you don't know Ben, but uh, I know Ben. He used to drive in the Lucas Oil Formula Car Series with Jackson, and he's been doing some midget racing. He works at times for IndyCar teams. He's a college engineering student. So good luck to everybody the next couple of days at the BC 39 at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Silly season from all forms of motorsport up next on Trackside. I love it when the uh, driver welcoming us back out of the bumper will uh, lead right into what we're talking about tonight. It's no coincidence, of course. Hey, but we'll get to the news of the day right now. A big racing weekend for both the Indianapolis Speedrome and Circle City Raceway. Saturday night, a wild and unpredictable 50-lap figure eight at the Speedrome. And Sunday, the return of the Jonathan Birds 410 Sprint Cars at Circle City Raceway. Adult tickets both nights are $10. And the Speedrome and Circle City Raceway feature free parking, great food, and exciting family fun and more. That's Saturday at the Indianapolis Speedrome and Sunday at Circle City Raceway. Kevin with the news of the day. So in the IndyCar and Formula One and NASCAR world, we just have competing teams claiming drivers and they're going to leave maybe while they're still under contract next season. In Indy Lights, we have drivers switching teams mid-season. Another change, James Rowe is the second driver in consecutive races to leave TJ Speed Motorsport for HMD motorsports for the next event he'll be taking over the number 11 entry which became open when antonio saravalli uh was determined he was not going to continue on so that leaves tj speed without a driver in nashville and i don't imagine we'll see them there and we'll see if they can get it something going uh later in the season kiffin simpson left the team earlier on to go to hmd so i joke about that and the reality is oftentimes seasons end because of budget restrictions um you know it, it's very possible that drivers are fulfilling the terms of the contract from the payment standpoint and have just simply said you know we're a two car now a one car team and i want to go with the team that's winning the championship and you know find out if my drivers 
any good. Maybe even the case of TJ Speed, once they lost one driver and went from a two-car to a one-car team, becomes more expensive on a per-driver basis to do that. And I don't know what the contractual situation was with James and the team, but you know, maybe actually cheaper and doable to be the sixth car on a team. And an even number is a good thing, meaning they put two cars in a transporter. A transporter is going there whether you have five or whether you have six, one or two. So, yes, you have to pay for some extra people and tires and so forth. But you get what I'm saying. So there's our news of the day because I wanted to mention that because Indy Lights is going to be in Nashville coming up this weekend. And then we get to the big fellas. Let's work in reverse order, I guess. So, uh I like this one, first of all. Jenna Fryer tweeted this before everything broke. On his Instagram, Lewis Hamilton commented on being signed by McLaren. Oh, sorry, saw the orange and just assumed that's what he was announcing. And it was in orange block letters that uh, Lewis Hamilton was announced as a co-owner of the Denver Broncos today. So that might have been news of the day candidate, but we're just getting started. What happened next, Kurt? Well, I guess, um, well, first of all, I like how the press release says that Lewis Hamilton knows a lot about winning, so that, that would help the Denver Broncos. I don't know if he knows play calling or That'll be the difference maker. Are. Yeah, go yeah, ahead and, I mean, and pick up the Broncos for the Super Bowl now because Lewis is forward. Because <laughs> he knows knows how to win a championship. So anyway, that's a press release for you. And I assume the quote that was in the press release was his quote. But these days, we don't know about <laughs> racing drivers being quoted. I thought maybe you so had the something next story, to add. There. So, so I don't. Are you fully up on the Formula One dealings of the day, or do you want me to run through it? You got it. You you run. I thought I was going to do Alex Pelo. You do F one. The F one okay. is far more interesting. So, so I guess we do have to backtrack a little bit on this because when did this happen? Yesterday morning, I think it was. It was announced that Fernando Alonso is leaving Alpine to go to Aston Martin. And then we since learned that Alpine learned of that when the tweet went out, that Fernando apparently didn't tell the team. Now, he had an option. So this one, no one's refuting this. Uh, He had, we believe, and, and because the team isn't denying it, but this has been the reporting all summer long, that Fernando controlled the option or at least had a mutual option that if he wanted to leave, he was free to leave at the end of the season. So he's going to replace Daniel Ricardo. Uh, I'm sorry. No, I'm getting it. That's another one. He's going to replace (laughs) Sebastian Vettel. He's going to replace Sebastian Vettel who announced he was retiring, stepping away or whatever last Thursday. And then there were a lot of names thrown out there for that one. And Alonzo was one of them wondering might he want to go there? Then wondering, oh, is Lawrence Stroll going to want that? Is he going to be a good mentor? Because remember, Lawrence Stroll, the owner's son, is the other driver, Lance Stroll. Now, in Fernando's mind, he may be thinking, one, they'll pay me really well. Two, I should always finish in front on the team. So there's a good thing. So that seat opens up for him. And then that's Aston Martin's issue to deal with. And it was also thought that Alpine probably wouldn't mind Alonzo leaving because they're not quite ready to win yet. They're better, but not quite ready to win. And they've had Oscar Piastri as a driver in their development system 
for several years now. And I'm told he's really, really good. He's won three straight championships. So this is like their Kyle Kirkwood. He won last year F2, and I forget the different categories, Formula Renault, whatever. But he won three straight significant championships on the way up, and there was no room for him this year in Formula One. So he's a reserve driver, and Alpine has retained his services. As recently as a couple of weeks ago, there was a theory that he might be farmed out to Williams for a year, which he might not have been too keen on because at Williams, you're likely going to finish at the back. But George Russell went from Williams to running up front with Mercedes, so it's still worthy of of doing. So then this happens on Monday. So then it's scrambling, and it's just assumed Piastri is going to move up. I will credit Marcus Erickson with being ahead. Did you see the tweet that he put out yesterday with kind of a grid of where he thought everyone was going to end up? And he had this. He had it. He had Alonzo already. I think he had already left, and he pegged Piastri going to McLaren. So today, Alpine announces Piastri will join them in Formula One in 2023. Great immediately the jokes on Twitter are when's McLaren go to announce they've signed him. When's he going to refute it? Joking. Here's a tweet from Oscar Piastri. Or was it Alex Pillow? I'm not sure, but it does say I looked at it. I checked to see it's not a fake account. It's got the blue check mark and everything. I understand that without my agreement, Alpine F1 have put out a press release late this afternoon that I am driving for them next year. That is wrong. And I have not signed a contract with Alpine for 2023. I will not be driving for Alpine next year. So at least Alpine has learned from the Ganassi release, and they did not include a quote from him saying how pleased he was to join the team. And actually some of the F1 journos and Twitter readers took note of that. "Ah, It seems kind of odd. There's no quote from a young man getting his Formula One opportunity about how happy he is. I wonder what's next. Now, back to the original, I haven't signed. My guess is, like we think with the Palo thing, it's been signed long ago. That he signed, he's their property. Um, but stay tuned. What we are seeing, and maybe McLaren has learned from this, eh, maybe we can avoid being sued if we don't announce a driver another team has a claim on as our contract driver. Let them work it out, and then we'll announce it. So we're still, as far as I know, waiting for McLaren to announce him. Uh, But no one's refuting that, that that's where he's going. That has to be where he's going, right? Or where he's trying to go. So that's driver number nine, I think it is, signed up to run for McLaren. And, of course, the jokes are that, uh, you know, Zach Brown and McLaren have hired Richard Petty. Uh, They've hired Mario Andretti. They've hired, you know, it goes on through the joke, depending on how far in the the little rabbit hole you want to go. But... It is a comical situation. I'm sure the drivers in the middle of these uh, dramas don't find it quite as much fun as we do, but comedy beyond belief. This is uh, good stuff. Well, the driver's not involved, and even some that are involved, like McLaren IndyCar drivers are putting out comments, veiled comments, uh, on social media. Oh, yeah, here's another reason why McLaren can't announce it. They need Ricardo to exit. They yeah. have two drivers under contract, and it's believed that Ricardo holds the option on this one. So, 
you know, essentially, I think they're doing everything they can to make Daniel Ricardo miserable and move on somewhere else. And there's probably a home for him somewhere next year. Are we running out of places for for Daniel, though? I don't I don't know what's left. What does Marcus Erickson say is going to happen to Daniel Ricardo? He could go to Alpine. Uh, He had him in a place. He let me let me see. I think I took a screenshot of Marcus's prognostication, but he had him in a home next year as well. Uh, Way too many screenshots. Oh, here it is. So he thinks that Alpine, Ocon, Esteban Ocon is there right now, and Pierre Gasly, Alpha Tori, Mick Schumacher leaves Haas. That's where it is. Mick Schumacher comes over with Yuki Tsunoda, and then at Haas, Kevin Magnuson and Daniel Ricciardo. So that's his home over there, which could make some sense wow. because uh, Ricardo is very popular. He he should probably change try a change of scenery. There's not a whole lot of pressure at Haas. Uh, let's see. Does he have other changes? He's got McLaren, Norris, and Piastri, Williams, Albon, and Nick DeVries, who's been mentioned in IndyCar circles for a little while, Formula E champion. Um, but, yeah, I think I trust Marcus Erickson. I'd ask him where he thinks Alex Pillow is going to be, but I don't know that he can really comment on that. So I haven't really talked to him in depth. <laughs> he's just – he's the only one that I think talks to Alex because they share the same – you know, a little bench inside the transporter. I haven't, I didn't ask Dixon or, or Jimmy this week if they're still trying to avoid Pillow or not. But I don't think it's getting any more comfy. So here's what's next. So there's the F1 portion of the program that maybe we'll circle back to. And there's always a new twist I saw yesterday afternoon regarding Alex Pillow and Chip Ganassi racing. So Alex Pillow's legal team has filed a motion requesting to, that the lawsuit filed against him and his company will be moved from the state level to the federal level uh, in Indiana because his argument is, I'm a Spaniard. Uh, I, you know, yes, I live in Indiana, but, uh, you know, Chip Ganassi lives in, in Pennsylvania, for heaven's sakes. And, and you know, ultimately, you know, who knows all the motiv- motives behind this. Maybe you have a better sense for this. Uh, you know, they... This is legal. Yeah. There's a lot of legal legalese in this. So it's not being moved to federal court yet. That's just their motion. They are requesting. Yes, it's a motion. Yes, that it being moved. Right. You know, one might be that their fear is, hey, Chip Ganassi and his attorneys have been um, major parts of that community. Even though Chip lives in Pittsburgh, he's had a pretty big presence in Indianapolis for a long time. We're not sure we're going to get a fair shake here, so we're going to argue that. That might be one. Another theory out there is that they want to stall a little bit. Uh, Alex Pillow is already in danger of who knows whether he's going to be able to race next year. And the good thing is he seems to have time more on his side because they already have their drivers signed at McLaren. Well, we think they may still be working on others, but it, it seems to be it's just a matter of, you know, is Alex Pillow going to be driving in IndyCar for Aero McLaren SP or is Felix Rosenquist? And then after that, it's, yes, they have to get a Formula E driver. Maybe Pillow contractually can be allowed to do that. But whatever, there's still a little bit of time. Chip Ganassi would likely want to have this taken care of as soon as possible so he can go outright 
hire someone to drive the number 10. Because his his mantra is, we want Alex Pillow. This is what it is his case is based on. We want Alex Pillow in the number 10 car next year, and he needs to do everything in good faith to show that they're planning on that. So it can't really be leaked that they've offered Renus VK the 10 car at this point. Now, here's something I thought of, too, though, when because some drivers have been talked about. Remember going back to February when uh, I think Zach Brown is the one that said this, or maybe Pato did, or maybe it was just a report that Ganassi had talked to Pato Award about joining them next year. Maybe that's when they found out that Alex Pillow was not happy and is thinking about leaving. Another story, but even for now, they could still say, we're reaching out to drivers because Jimmy Johnson has not told us what he's going to do next year. Or you could always say, I'm thinking about running a fifth car. You know, you don't have to necessarily say which car it's for because Jimmy hasn't said definitively. It's based on budget. Jimmy's got to get Carvana back or the American Legion has to step up or someone else to pay for that ride. That is a ride that needs to be funded. So I think they can still go through the process of talking to drivers but that was one theory that dragging it out puts some more pressure on Ganassi to want this to get settled so we can figure out what's going on. Maybe then he's more amenable to a buyout. So we know that to be part of the equation because Chip explicitly requested that in the, the suit that the hearing be held very quickly. In fact, they yes. put a time limit on the end of the month of August Uh you know, ultimately, I think the biggest reason to do this from Alex Pelot's standpoint is what you addressed first is that, you know, you're you're having this basically in Chip Ganassi Racing's backyard if you're doing this at the kind of the state level. And it's, uh, you know, you're always looking for a fair trial. And it would seem to be, um, even though both sides have good representation, quality representation, representation in fact outstanding representation but still it would benefit to not be essentially playing in in chip ganassi racing's backyard where chip ganassi's won the indy 500 and been the series champion and you know obviously uh motorsports is such a big deal in this community one of the f1 journals today uh, suggested that Daniel Ricardo will drive the Ganassi car, that McLaren will offer a trade uh, <laughs> to release Polo. I don't know that Ricardo is going to go for that. Maybe he will if they want to pay him his current $12, 15 $20 million salary. You know, he might be, I'll go wherever you want me to, and I'll drive the Indy 500. You know, he does seem like the one guy over there that might be open to doing that. I, I'll still believe it when he pulls the trigger, but he, he's one that doesn't just actively dismiss it and said, oh, that's crazy. I'm not ever doing that. You know, he does, I think, have some interest in that. Will he do it? I doubt it. But, hey, at this point, with the way things have been going, I don't know that we can dismiss anything. Oh, I agree with you. I don't I don't know that he would be Chip's choice to drive the car. I wouldn't car. think I know, so. <laughs> I mean, he's got a lot of talent. I get that. And if you were going to commit a long-term, you know, project – uh, even kind of of the Ericsson ilk, then then maybe. But, uh, you know, Ricardo's 
getting back to the F1 situation just a little bit, keep in mind, he would like he's only going to have one one more year at McLaren if that's the option he takes. If he goes to Haas, he could ask for multiple years, which is where Alonso was with Alpine. Uh, you know, he didn't he didn't want to sign a contract that would be a one year and then the team option. He wanted long term uh, security. So, yeah, this silly season, it, it we really almost need a for both Formula One and IndyCar and NASCAR, I guess. We look at Tyler Reddick's situation. We almost need a word that's yeah. Well, Kyle Busch, yeah. We need a we need a word another word besides silly because we've we've moved past silly. This is unprecedented. Well, I think it actually does apply. I've thought the last few years, "Eh, silly. Can we can we come up with a better word than silly season? Because it's free agency. This year, it is silly season. I think it for the first time in a while really does apply when you've got multiple teams signing the same driver, then that is the essence of silly season. You know, the more I think about it, hey, hey, maybe, why wouldn't Chip Ganassi want Daniel Ricciardo? From a commercial standpoint, this guy's a personality. You know, if you're IndyCar, you'd love to have Daniel Ricciardo. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so actually, I'm going to take back my chuckle at that. Now, it's it's very possible that Chip Ganassi wants nothing to do with anyone that's been associated with Zach Brown and McLaren, but he's getting kicked to the curb, so I don't think he's going to hold that against him. If Daniel Ricciardo wanted to come to IndyCar, I think somebody would find a place for him, especially if Zach Brown was willing to pay most of the salary and he was paid a commiserate salary to what other IndyCar drivers are making, which is, you know, a 12th. As an un, maybe he can get to three million a year, based on what partnership you could find around him and so forth, which is still going to be a fourth or fifth or a sixth of what he's currently making. He's not driving for that at this point, so it's going to be based on someone else paying him the contract. Another thought I had is, you know, Zach Brown is um, taking a lot of criticism for uh, just running roughshod and and being a little bit reckless and a lot of commentary that, that this form of doing business is not good for IndyCar. And I'll leave that for others. But what I would say in this is maybe there is a master plan in everything. The more I think about this, uh, he, he's going to be able to move Ricardo without a problem. If he, he's decided he doesn't want Ricardo anymore, he may know that Schumacher is leaving Haas there's an empty seat there. He can go to Ricardo and say, you know, contractually, we're paying you next year and the seat is yours if you want it. However, you have no chance at the seat in 2024 and this is what we're doing. And uh, Lando Norris is our lead driver. But if you want to continue to do that, good luck. Or, by the way, I know that Haas has an open seat and I think they'd sign you for two years and we'll, we'll happily endorse you moving on if you want to do that. It's almost like he's going to find a job for the guy, so he wants to leave. So he knows one way or another, Ricardo, if he wants to continue driving, is doing that, or he's just going to say, I'm fed up with all of it. I've made $100 million. I'm going back to Australia. And that might happen. Uh, but but I think I think one of those scenarios is going to play out in regards to, uh, you know, Zach essentially pushing him down the road because – Daniel's going to want to do more than just be the lame duck in 2023. Yep. That's not that's not who he is. So back to the NASCAR silly season, Kyle Busch was, it sounded like, pretty open 
and maybe he's a little bit humbled at this point, you know, talking with people about where things stand and he's willing to take a pay cut because he he understands that the market is not what it once was. Drivers making 10 to 20 million dollars. It's not doable in NASCAR because the sponsorship just isn't there anymore. So I don't know what the number is, but I know entry level drivers in NASCAR that come in with some renown, you know, that are desired. They're probably in the same category as successful IndyCar drivers. And that's not the way it was a few years ago. Even entry-level NASCAR drivers that came in with some demand were making significantly more. So now that that's one of the reasons why you've seen so many guys retire in the last few years, because they've made a lot of money and they've decided, you know what? I was making $10 million. Yeah, a million and a half, $2 million is pretty good, but I don't have to do that. And that is a grind. So I'm getting out and I'm going to TV or I'm doing endorsements or I'm doing whatever else it is. So I don't know what the number is for Bush, how far he has to go down. But he did say, you know, some people have suggested to me, I do like the Kyle Larson tour. If I can't find the deal I want for next year, then I go run things for fun next year. And, you know, he probably mentioned late models and World of Outlaws uh, sports cars and the Indy 500 was also in there. Now he later said, I think that's probably pretty far down the list, but I think it was Nate Ryan at NBCSports.com who is more on the NASCAR side of things than the IndyCar side wrote a column saying Kyle Busch should really look into that. And from a commercial standpoint, could the argument not be made if he's being asked to take a big pay cut doing nothing but big events he might make us just just as much money doing that uh, running 12 times a year and things he wants to do than he would running 40 weekends a year. Maybe not quite as much, but quality of life, he could probably still do pretty well. And that would be the way he could do well at the Indy 500. If he was not running cup full time, if he could get in a car this fall, could test next spring, test other places, non-Indy 500 tracks, test at Fontana, Kyle Busch could be a contender at the Indy 500. Sure. And I, I there would be a couple opportunities with teams. I mean, a couple teams would be very eager to see that happen, including the boss himself. Uh, so, yeah, it's not the it's not the craziest uh, thought in the world. And and good on Nate, you know, who has has some clout to um, to throw that out there. Because I think, you know, it could really happen. And uh, I think it would be good for Kyle. And I, I think he would make as much or more, depending on how low he had to go on a NASCAR contract. But I think he could make pretty close, at least similar money. On a percentage-wise, you know, on a what you're getting paid right. per week. That's right. Yeah. I mean, because I'm going to guess, I don't know what his salary would be. It's probably out there reported somewhere. But it's got to be 15 to $20 million something like that. Maybe that's too high. Maybe that's including endorsements. You know, I don't think he's going to be asked to drive for 2 million. It's still probably still very considerably high. But as we said last week too, when you think about it, Kyle Busch doesn't make as much money for you in moving product. There is a limited amount of corporations that he's going to represent. So that takes away some of his value. He's just got to win and get your image on TV by running in the front the entire time and being in victory lane. Short of winning, he doesn't have as much value because then when you see him, it's generally negative. 
because he's complaining <laughs> or he's crashing uh, and then complaining or, or something else that's negative that goes along with that. So uh, it, it's helped make his career and it's kind of put him to some extent where he's at right now. That said, we enjoy people who speak the truth and or their truth and are honest and are personalities. But if they're representing you, it doesn't always work out that way. We want other people to, to be personalities. If you're representing my company, no, I want you to stick to the talking points. That's kind of how it works. That's, what, that's why it was great that he ran for M&Ms because M&Ms, they didn't, they didn't you know, M&Ms are great. You know, we all love M&Ms, Kyle Bush or not. That's true. Yeah, it's, it's hard for us to say I'm not going to have M&Ms anymore because Kyle Bush exactly. said some, something mean. No, exactly. you can't turn down M&Ms. <laughs> All right, we've got a lot of things still to cover, including getting your Twitter comments and questions at KevinLee23 at Kurt Cavan on Trackside. Several things I want to still get to, but I also want to answer some Twitter questions at KevinLee23 at Kurt Cavan. Star asked this one. I think you can help with this, Kurt. Briar says, as a hopeful PR rep in motorsport, how would one learn from the ganassi Polo saga after the accidental press release that went out a few weeks ago in order to prevent that it from happening again? Is the driver at fault or is the PR rep at fault for sending out the release that wasn't approved? You know, I just don't know how this one came to be because um, it just clearly is a breakdown in communication somewhere. And I don't know if it was with, you know, between the, the team management and the PR team. Uh, but that is that is one of those that based on where I've worked and who I've worked with and around and, and in conjunction with that, there's just no way that happens. Uh, so I don't have an answer for you on that one. Uh, everybody usually reviews the press releases. Um, so I can't imagine this went out with, with Alex's quote in it, but he didn't approve it. I think it was approved by the person, well, I think it, I think it might have been approved by the person that mattered that the PR rep is working for. I think Chip Ganassi said that we're sending this out. So I, I don't think a PR rep can be blamed for the release sending out. No. That was, that was clearly at the directive, but yes, the quote is the one. And it's also very possible that the PR rep, the person writing this didn't have any say it was, this is what we're doing. I guess the lesson to be learned is know what's going on and ask questions to try to protect people quietly if you knew, but that that's not the PR reps no, job. I, you got to, you got to trust your bosses on this. That That's, you know, it's not on the PR team on this one. Yeah. I just can't, your, your explanation of this is chip saying, no, this is what we're doing and this is how it's going to go down is the only explanation because otherwise it's, it is a breakdown of communication, but it can't be, it just can't be. But, but um, now maybe you know, Chip didn't like say it, include the quote. So maybe that's the lesson learned is that, all right, you got the news and then send it back to management. You may not get it to Chip Ganassi, but put it to someone above you. And I want you to look at this one more time before I send this out. I guess. I don't know. No, I, I, I don't. It, it's, it's, it just doesn't add up. Uh, it, it, it almost, yeah, I don't know about the quote. I, I would love to know. I don't, I don't know that we'll ever know how it actually happened. Um, but clearly I think this was, 
this was a, a gameplay on behalf of of the Ganassi management to get this thing rolling. Uh, you know, we think we have him under contract, and we hear he's going to sign with with McLaren. But I, I don't know. It's it's a really odd situation, and, and it just doesn't add up from my my perspective. And then on the other side, McLaren sends out a press release. Um, I don't know if they're going to face any legal ramifications of this. Zach Brown has been on the record saying, I haven't looked at his contract, and that's what he needs to say. And then it's up to others to believe whether that's accurate or not, whether he had no idea, uh, even when Chip Ganassi had said publicly, I have the option on this guy for a contract. And I don't know if if that's going to be any issue, if he can just say, hey, the driver told me he was free, so I signed him. And we go from there. Uh, but it's not done. We'll probably get that, that announcement on that lawsuit coming sometime in the near future. Uh, other Twitter questions. Uh, Jen says, is there a Tuesday-only su- subscription rate to the news? Clearly, your scheduling ability is impressive this year. Glad they're in Europe, though, so you can breathe a bit tonight unless, uh, unless you're on tomorrow night. So it's good that we're getting the F1 people on board with giving out news on Tuesday and our Tuesday for the show tonight. Uh, from Last of the Bohicans, Matt B. Holland. I was in the museum with my sons to beat the heat for a bit. No joke, an Xfinity crew member was in there. An Xfinity crew was in there taking turns getting photos on the IndyCar chassis. I can't remember the team or driver name, but that was cool to see. Field of 33, Paul Dalby says, want to make IndyCar fans care more about the IMS doubleheader, send the Xfinity cars back to IRP so Cup and IndyCar can actually headline together on Saturday and Sunday. IndyCar don't want to be third fiddle at their home track ever. It's insulting. Yeah, I heard that comment a few times from people. It was a bit annoying that IndyCar was out by turn one and out of their garage and the driver bus lot was by turn four. Here's the short-term, at least, reality of this. This was a NASCAR weekend. NASCAR had a long-term contract that included, I'm sure, last year and this year, and it was asked, can IndyCar join you? So some of it involves that. Um, But it is annoying, but I'm not sure that it's totally wrong. I don't know, but that's... They're the ones paying the money this weekend. They're bringing, you know, the number is, I forget the number. And probably because I don't know it because it's likely changed. But I know, according to reports, it's well over $10 million. And maybe closer to $20 million is what IMS collects without selling a ticket for this weekend from the TV contract. Now, some of that goes to pay the sanctioning fee or it goes to pay the prize money. So they're not just pocketing $20 million, but that's real money. So... Always look to the money when you decide how things are done and why they're done. It's a NASCAR weekend, and if NASCAR says, no, that's not acceptable, we will just add another race to Michigan this weekend, one of our tracks or somewhere else, and you can go pound sand, then that's not a good option for IMS. So you have to be a little bit delicate on that front, but I do hear you and others. And Brian 500, Indy 1911 said the same thing. Embarrassing the IndyCar garage is relegated to the hospitality lot. You know, yeah, yeah, it was noted on track at 815 race before. uh, 
TV rating is nice, though. For a noon start, you get over a million. That's kind of the number that, you know, you feel like that's okay. You, you get over a million. You get some cross-promotion. Hopefully, you gain some new fans moving forward. You got a lot of publicity for your race coming up next weekend. So, all things considered, I still think this is a good weekend to be a part of for IndyCar. I think so, too. And for the love of Indy, says the biggest reason why the IndyCar race leads off the Brickyard weekend is that you know the race will be done within two hours. How many NASCAR road races, for example, uh. either side of the two series end up 45-minute red flags for an accident that happens frequently enough. Fair point, but I think ultimately the NASCAR uh, brass would dictate that they are the headliner on Saturday, and we run at 3.30, so to speak. And IndyCar, if you want to participate, you can go before us. So yep. that's that's not an NBC or a TV thing or even a track thing. I think that's NASCAR mandating they go second, and they'll keep their schedule as it routinely would be, and we'll run late afternoon, we being NASCAR. Don says, if Cup goes back to the Oval in 2024, can we please put Mid-Ohio back to their traditional end-of-July weekend? Yeah, if IndyCar's not racing then, that would be open. I don't know how everyone feels about that. In some ways, Mid-Ohio has done, I think, pretty well running on 4th of July weekend. Certainly, they're the only one that's found success so far. How many different venues have had a 4th of July race for IndyCar and how many have gone away because it just didn't work? And that has worked. Could it be better on another weekend? Probably. But I think IndyCar would like to race somewhere on 4th of July weekend. It's good tv viewing weekend so then it's can we find a track that's amenable to this yeah it comes to mind uh kansas watkins Glen, um mid ohio there's three that have tried it in recent years yep. and there's i'm surely more all right we'll see what we missed and i've got some other nuggets i want to mention coming up in a moment on trackside a few more twitter comments from bill if they consider putting the cup cars back on the oval, don't you think we need to have some sort of special handling and arrow package for those cars to make it more interesting? It's a good point. I think that's one of the reasons why next year wouldn't be a consideration. They're still trying to figure out this new next-gen car. And, you know, going back to all the things we talked about, uh, that's a large part of it. It's really difficult on a big, flat track. They haven't figured out the arrow to make this race entertaining. Can't go too wide here. What can it be? They don't know yet. Maybe with another year of development, they'll have some more ideas. So, you know, I don't think it's any kind of a lock in 24, but my guess will be because that, that's the conundrum here. It looks empty, and I know it's not empty, and I know it's still a decent enough crowd, and it has a decent television rating compared to other events, so it should be, from a business standpoint, viable, but this is also about visuals, and so you're trying to make it better. And I suspect that enough people, especially the drivers who want to be on the oval, when you ask them, because that's where the Indy 500 drivers race. We want to be where they raced and where Jeff Gordon won in 1994. So all of that uh, makes me think along with, hey, let's ovals will be the new thing. Road courses were the hip thing here for the last couple of years. People are going to get tired of that. Uh, let's go back and go back to what we did before. So that'll be the new marketing plan starting uh, in a couple of years will be my guess. Yeah. Going back to history. Mm hmm. And then they'll continue to, you know, look at some other tracks that they've abandoned and do some different things. And 
uh, make some things that way as well. All right, some other things that I missed. So there was a headline in the Tennessean today, why Jimmy Johnson could return to NASCAR after the IndyCar Music City Grand Prix. Well done, because I had to click that one. Made it sound like he's going to quit IndyCar and go back to stock cars after the weekend. No, it's nothing new. It's not. It, it, it did say, you know, th- this was the news nugget out of this. Jimmy said, I'm a little busier than I wanted to be between IMSA and IndyCar. It's a lot. And he has always said, I'm open to doing some one-off NASCAR races. And that has not changed from that front. But that little quote there, you know, maybe that's kind of offering a landing spot at the end of the season if he says, I may not do this full-time next year. Last I talked to him, that was still his plan. But maybe he does back out on that just a little bit uh, moving forward. Uh, If you want to get ahead of the game, IndyCar schedule is not out. But the SROO schedule announced St. Pete March 3rd through 5th. That means IndyCar is going to be that weekend. So go ahead and book your hotel. I checked. They're already pretty high. I think the locals know that's when the race is going to be. And the IMSA schedule is coming out this weekend, and we'll learn some more things there. Maybe one more nugget that helps us with IndyCar. So we'll talk more about that next week as well. We're out of time, Kurt. Thank you. Good to see you. All right, there have been changes to the track. We didn't get a chance to discuss it, but we will on Peacock on Friday and the Music City Grand Prix on the radio. What's start time for this race coming up this weekend, Kurt? Three o'clock. Three o'clock on NBC, the Big Machine Music City Grand Prix. Hope you can join us from Nashville racing over a bridge. Have you heard that before? Thanks to Josh Mullenix in our studio. For Kurt, I'm Kevin. We'll see you next Tuesday night at 7.